Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. I should first mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions or practices of any of our guests. Today, we have an incredibly special episode of the podcast for all of you. We have five, yes, you heard me correctly, five nationally recognized shoulder surgery specialists joining us to speak on a variety of topics. First, we have Dr. Catherine Burns, a shoulder surgeon at SSM Health Group in Missouri. Dr. Burns completed a residency at the University of Utah here in Salt Lake, and then a fellowship at Kaiser in San Diego. Dr. Burns, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Next, we have Dr. Julia Lee, a shoulder surgeon at Sierra Pacific Orthopedics in Fresno, California. Dr. Lee completed her residency at Greenville Health System in South Carolina and then completed her shoulder and elbow fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's certainly an honor to be here and what a great group. I'm super excited. Next, we have Dr. Sarah Edwards, a sports medicine and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in San Francisco. I'm sorry, the University of California in San Francisco. Dr. Edwards completed a residency at Northwestern and then a fellowship at Columbia in New York City. Dr. Edwards, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Next, we have Dr. Julie Bishop, a sports medicine and shoulder surgeon at The Ohio State University. <laughs> Dr. Bishop completed her residency at George Washington University, completed two fellowships at Mount Sinai, New York, as well as the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Bishop, welcome to the podcast. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And last but not least, we have Dr. Alicia Harrison, a shoulder surgeon and the residency program director at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Harrison completed a residency at the University of Minnesota and then did a fellowship at Mount Sinai in shoulder and surgery. Dr. Harrison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you may have noticed that all of our speakers are women. It's almost unheard of in orthopedics to have only women on the panel, when so often there are so many men on the panels that we typically refer to such panels as mantles. Today will be different, and I personally couldn't be more excited. I know the ASCS is super excited to have such a podcast, and we just have five incredible shoulder surgeons who all happen to be women joining us today to speak on a variety of topics. So without further ado, let's get started with the first question. Pete, why don't you take it away? All right, so Dr. Burns, tell us what drew us for, drew you first to shoulder surgery. So for me, the interest in shoulder surgery started because uh, it really seemed to have so many new possibilities. So I've been in practice almost 20 years. So I started practice before reversal replacement was even available in the United States. Uh, you know, I started shoulder practice when arthroscopic shoulder surgery was in many ways uh, in its infancy, or at least its adolescence. And uh, for me, what was really exciting was the opportunity to learn and grow in this field that was just explosively changing when I started my practice. Dr. Lee, how about you? What, what first drew you to the field? Um, so I would echo what uh, Catherine said about um, leaning about this being a field that has a lot of anatomy that was sort of learning. So I think uh, for me, it was the anatomy. I appreciated the shoulder and there was so much more um, learning to do about uh, learning about shoulder mechanics, about implant design, and just a lot of growth and development in the field that was uh, still still up and coming. So that, and that definitely drew me to shoulder surgery. 
What about you, Dr. Edwards? What was it that drew you first to shoulder surgery? Hi, thanks for the question. I, I'm kind of maybe a little different in that I was more of a sports applicant. So when I was applying, I was very diehard sports medicine. And then I think I evolved into a shoulder surgeon over time. Um, so I really was wanted to continue the knee work. And over time, I became, it was funny, because when you're a resident and you do those surgeries, the knee was very concrete and seemed simpler to me. And I was drawn to that. And the shoulder was kind of a mystery, which scared me a little bit. But then as I got more comfortable with it, I really liked how that it was more difficult than the knee. I think there there's more of a nuance to doing shoulder surgery than the knee. So I was kind of drawn to it when I started as a sports applicant, for sure. And I also went to Columbia for my fellowship, which has skewed me towards the, the shoulder world, for sure. So You always got to be difficult saying that shoulder surgery is harder than knee surgery around Rachel, but I hear you. I totally agree with you. What, do you, <laughs> what about you, Dr. Bishop? It. Let's keep that to a minimum, Pete. <laughs> Let's just keep that discussion on the down low. Might need to edit that part out. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Dr. Bishop? What first drew you to shoulder surgery? Um, you know, I think a little bit to echo the others, I was drawn to how nuanced I felt that it was. I felt it was a very complicated joint. There were so many different types of surgery that you could perform. And I really wanted to be able to do shoulder surgery in my practice. And I did not want to be somebody that dabbled in shoulder surgery and maybe um, didn't really understand it or didn't really do a good job. And so I felt like if I'm going to do this, I want to master it. And I love the ability to do sports, to do young people, to do joint replacement, to do, you know, arthroplasty, fracture, sports medicine. I think it is the one joint where you really can specialize in that joint and do everything. Um, so I love the variety. And then finally, Dr. Harrison, what are your thoughts? What, what first made you decide you wanted to become a shoulder surgeon? So... For me, it really was mentorship, which I think is um, is a really interesting thing to think about, especially in light of our, our panel tonight. Um, quite honestly, I was assigned the shoulder dissection in my um, of my residency class, and the educator who was teaching it was so incredibly passionate about the anatomy and how how really wonderful the joint was and opened it up to me as a possibility for a career. And um, that truly was the defining moment for me. And then I just loved, like Dr. Bishop, um, the fact that you could do so many different types of care and surgery for this, um, for this joint and this, and this anatomy. I love that I can see really young people, and I love that I can see um, much more older people and a huge variety of problems for this, for this joint. I just, I think it's the best specialty. A lot of common themes in those answers. Let me ask another question and we don't typically ask this question, but I think we should more often, cause I think it'd be interesting with all of our guests on this podcast to know the answer to this question. And that question is, what is your absolute favorite shoulder case to do? When you see this on your list, what gets you going? What makes you say, I'm so glad I get to operate today. Uh, this is this is what I train for. This is what I love to do. Let's start with Dr. Harrison first. We'll go kind of in reverse order. What's your favorite surgery to do? I really love anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty. It is life-changing. And when done well, honestly, it just gives people back so much um, function and 
adds so much to their life. And Dr. Bishop, how about you? What gets you going in the OR? Well, you know, that's funny, uh, Rachel, because I think um, things have changed for me over the years. So like Dr. Burns, I'm a little bit on the older side of this panel. Um, and I think early on, you know, I really love the complex cases that nobody else could really do where you could really change somebody's life and you could take something that has failed and give them their quality of life back. And while I still like those cases, I kind of like your 75 year old old lady with not a lot of muscle tone, a little bit of fat and a real nice straightforward anatomic total shoulder compared to a 400-pound muscular barrel-chested guy. So now I grade my surgeries and what I enjoy doing on how, how, how physically taxing it is for me. Love it. A lot of arthroplasty so far. Dr. Edwards, tell us, apart from knee surgery, which we know you absolutely love more, what is your favorite shoulder case to do? No, I don't love it more now, Rachel. I, I do love my shoulder surgery more. So I've evolved. I started out liking the knee when I was a resident, but now definitely shoulder. Um, I get so psyched doing just a chip shot, arthroscopic bank heart. <laughs> and that is a fun case. You see the anatomy so clearly. You fix them. They generally have great results. And uh, that's that's really fun for me. All right, Dr. Lee, how about you? What's your favorite case in the OR? Um, I would have to echo the uh, the anatomic total shoulder, or really nice, you know, 75-year-old female, end-stage arthritis, type A1 glenoid, um, not a lot of soft tissue, and who just is tough at baseline, and so she recovers well. Um, I would definitely echo that. But there's also a little bit of when it's a nice, really – uh, clean cut, rotator cuff tear, uh, nice little double row repair. Those can be very satisfying as well. Dr. Burns, how about you? What gets you going? Well, I really like it all, honestly. It, it's all fun. But, you know, I think I think one of the great things about shoulder surgery, and we've already touched on it, there, there is so much variety within shoulder surgery. And in many ways, that's kind of why I like a cuff repair, because no matter how much we think we can predict what we're going to get into with a cuff repair with MRI, you just never know. You get in there and something you think is going to mobilize well doesn't or um, something that you expect isn't going to mobilize at all and you are prepared for SCR kind of comes over really well. And then you have to decide, you know, what you're going to do at that point. So I, I kind of like uh, cuff repairs because it's like a box of chocolates. You just don't know. Hey, Pete, before we get to the next question, what's your favorite shoulder case? I love all the shoulder cases equally, but uh, uh, the one that I love the most is probably the arthroscopic labor repair. What about you, Rach? Uh, I, I mean, there's so many, I mean, I'm a junkie, um, but from a shoulder perspective, I love an arthroscopic bank art repair as well. Um, a nice 360 degree or 270 degree repair. There, there's, uh, there's nothing more satisfying than getting that sealed up. Um, but I also like, uh, I like distal tibialographs and ladder J's. I do those open um, and I, I just love the challenge of those cases. Um, the, the nervous factor goes up a little bit on those cases just because they're a little bit higher stakes um, than, you know, your typical arthroscopic cases, at least for me. Um, but I like that challenge. So, you know, the sporty shoulder stuff is, is my favorite stuff. Let's do a little uh, rapid fire. I mean, all, the, all of our panelists are high volume shoulder arthroplasty experts. We've heard several say that the anatomic total shoulder is their favorite 
secret operation. So let's go rapid fire anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty. Are you currently doing stemless, short, stem, or standard, and why? So Dr. Burns, what do you think? What are you using right now? So I do uh, stemless, short stem, and occasionally standard uh, because, you know, every patient might have a little bit uh, different need. But, you know, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty is uh, a, a pretty interesting case no matter which size stem you use. Dr. Lee, what's it's, your preferred implant these days in terms of stem length? Um, I usually do a stemless, if at all possible, but we'll be able to a short stem implant if needed, depending on the person's uh, bone quality. What do you think, Dr. Edwards? What, what, what size stem are you using right now? That's the same for me. And again, I, I base it on the patient. So I t typically use a stemless if I think their bone quality is good enough. So my male patients... Um, that are younger. Uh, I recently, you know, I, I misjudged. It was interesting. I had to convert a stemless to a stems intraop on a woman after I'd already prepared and implanted the stem, a stemless implant. And then it just like fell out of her shoulder, you know, because her bone quality, she was only 54, but her bone quality was not good enough. So um, I learned that lesson, that, you know, to be more cautious with the women. <laughs> um, but yes, I will use a stemless primarily and if I can, and then stemmed. Usually a long stem. I'll use a standard. I, I'm glad you said that. When you... okay. I'm so sorry ahead, to interrupt, please. but I, I did have a question because I actually recently did my first stemless on a woman in her 50s, and I also had a little bit of concern about bone quality. And I'm just kind of curious from the panel, um, you know, is is stemless arthroplasty for men only? Uh, I'm just kind of curious um, uh, what people think about that because for for me, most of the time it is male patients as well. Sorry, side question. You know, that's a great. No, that's perfect. I'm, sorry, yeah. Peter, I mean to interrupt, but that's a great question because I asked myself the same thing because it was the first time, you know, here I had an expensive implant open and it didn't work. And I was upset because I had to open a second implant in the OR, which is a big deal. And and I think um, it's, I was talking to one of my, my mentors, Dr. Ted Blaine about it, who was one of my fellowship teachers and he's currently at HSS and. He said, I never do a stimulus in a woman. He goes, it's very unusual. You know, and so I, that would be a great discussion for ASCS for, for all the people. You know, how often are they finding that a 50-year-old female bone quality isn't quite good enough? So. I've had the same question. I'm glad you all brought that up. I think it's, I think it's a really interesting area and I've had the same concern. So certainly an area that, that we should perhaps look into some more. certainly wonder if these stimulus implants, if they're designed by design teams largely composed of male surgeons, and if this is maybe something they don't think about as often. Um, certainly, this is certainly a, a huge argument for diversity on our design teams, as well as diversity on all of our research teams to make sure these kind of research questions get brought up. Yeah, it's so true. And as, as I'm sure everyone here is aware, you know, women are so underrepresented on uh, industry relationship contracts. And I I think it really is, it's not just a problem for the women in orthopedics, it's a problem for the field of orthopedics and the industry. So I think you bring up a really good point. All right, let me get, let's get through the rest of the panel. Dr. Bishop, when you see that, when you see that case on the schedule you love so much, the 75 year old woman who's thin and she's got that anatomic shoulder arthroplasty on the schedule, what, what kind of implant are you using for that patient and why? 
Um, so to echo, I think what a lot of people were just saying, um, I never use stemless in women. Um, I just have never felt comfortable doing that. Um, on my older ladies, I use the short stem. I used to use long stem um, for 14, 15 years, and then I switched to the short stem. I've been really happy with that. Um, and for my younger male patients with good bone, I'll use the stemless. And Dr. Harrison? Um, essentially exactly the same as, as Dr. Bishop. Um, I used uh, standard stems for, for quite a while. Um, perhaps it's our Sinai training. Um, yes, but I felt I, obligated, right? <laughs> <laughs> at least they're not, I, I don't cement them anymore. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, went uh, quite a bit ago to uh, short stems. And then on younger male patients, I have um, expanded into the stemless. All right, guys, let's reverse it to the reverse. Um, so everyone loves the reverse. No one mentioned it yet, but I love reverses. Everyone loves reverses. For the right patient, they're a home run. For, for the wrong patient, they're definitely not a home run. Um, let's do rapid fire. Let's start with Dr. Harrison. How young will you go for a reverse? What's your cutoff? Whew. <laughs> so um... – I would say, I mean, I have done as young as um, a person in their 30s, but that person is physiologically definitely not a 30-year-old. Um, you know, this was somebody who has, you know, pretty severe, um, relatively poorly controlled rheumatoid arthritis um, or difficult to control rheumatoid arthritis and just had a horrible quality of life and so was able to give her an arthroplasty but but had to use... Um, you know, sort of a custom implant for given her deformity. So I would rather not do it in somebody, you know, under, under 65 or so, but, um, but, you know, sometimes the case is what it is. And, and if we can give these people um, a, a life with less pain, I think that that's important to respect that. And Dr. Bishop, how about you? What are you doing in Ohio? Are uh, are you giving reverses as your practice evolves um, to more you know younger patients, or are you still mostly anatomic in that age group and kind of reserving reserve, reverse for the older patients? And I would say my practice has definitely evolved, but um, as Dr. Harrison was saying, I think at this point, if the case and the outcome warrants a reverse, then I, I will do a reverse. So I've had some younger late 30s, early 40s JIA patients that, um, yes, are physiologically much older, um, and nothing but a reverse is going to give them quality of life. And then we've had some just terrible disasters, other surgeries gone wrong, where the only remaining option is a reverse. And, and rather than not give somebody quality of life, I will do a reverse um, in a young patient if it's indicated. But of course, I would prefer um, the older patient in their 60s but um, my practice doesn't always, uh, always, isn't always filled with that. Now, Dr. Edwards, it's in training season for the residents. Um, what's the board answer here? How young is too young for a reverse? We know the boards are not real life, but, but what's the board answer? What are the residents supposed to answer on the test here? Yeah, I mean, the board answer is still 70, I believe, is the, is the indication. And so, um, but I agree with all those comments echoed earlier. We know that there's occasionally a patient um, that the only way to improve their arm function and their quality of life is to do the reverse. And so I think that's appropriate that we expand the indications as needed. 
I do think my youngest I've done, I haven't gone that young, maybe 54. I just did a 54 year old and she was the youngest. Lots of comorbidities physiologically. She was 75, you know, but um, I tend to still see a reverse as a, I, I'm old enough that I see it as a salvage procedure when, when necessary um, and try to really, you know, fix a rotator cuff that's maybe borderline. I do those things first before I jump to reverse. I don't really like doing reverses for just cuff tears. Um, I like it to be cuff tear arthropathy or bad arthritis, or a, I do love them for proximal humerus fractures. You know, I think that's a great indication for one and where I'll go younger. So. And Dr. Lee, how about you? How does reverse fit into your practice? How young will you go? I think the youngest, the youngest I've done is a 50 year old male. And that took a while for me to get there. Um, I, I do think that as the implants have evolved, as we have learned from our previous mistakes in terms of scapular notching, in terms of, uh, you know, dialing down the implants and learn, learning the neck shaft angles. Um, as we learn a little bit more about that, our implants have also improved. Um, so I have told patients, you know, because they go down the Google rabbit hole and they go, well, I don't want to reverse, you know, this is what happens with the reverse. I'm like, well, you know, our implants have changed. Um, so they, I think they're, you know, we've learned a lot of the mistakes that we've had in the past. Um, if it gives the patient a better quality of life, um, I'll go younger. Um, so I think the youngest, the youngest I've done is a 50 year old male. Um, I don't know if I would go too much younger than that, but I certainly echo the uh, sentiments of this is really a salvage procedure. If a tendon transfer is available for a younger patient, I will do that. If there's some sort of soft tissue reconstruction to, we can, that will help them, I will do that. Uh, but if it's really a reverse only, then it's really a reverse only. Dr. Burns, how about you? Are you operating on 30-year-olds with reverses or what's your threshold here? Yeah, I, I mean, I just echo the sentiments that that everyone said. Uh, yeah, my youngest reverses was in their 30s, um, but uh, obviously, you kind of with patients that young, you get backed into a reverse. You know, as the patients are 70 plus, reverse maybe becomes the best choice for that patient. Uh, but the younger patients, you really do, you know, as Julia mentioned, you have to kind of rule out that there are soft tissue procedures, tendon transfers, other types of surgeries that might help that patient. Um, and so, you know, I, I, for me, the age is really just one factor that you're going to consider, but it's, it's, it's not a deal breaker. And, and I couldn't echo more of the sentiments that our implants have changed. I think e-poly is going to be a game changer in terms of longevity of reverse. So, you know, I, I just anticipate that the indications will continue to widen. All right, let me continue the rapid fire and then we're going to get to a different topic. But this rapid fire now is going to go to, um, to bank art repair. And this is going to be super rapid fire. We're going to go down the line, one to two word answers. Want to know for your anterior labral tears that you're going to repair arthroscopically, are you going beach, lateral, or and are you going knotless or knotted with your suture anchors? Let's start with Dr. Lee, beach or lateral? Uh, I am beach chair all the way and uh, knotless for sure. Okay, Dr. Burns. Lateral knotless. And Dr. Edwards. Beach chair and a hybrid of knotted and knotless. So I do the knotted ones at the lower, lower anchors and knotless as I move up. Okay, Dr. Harrison, beach or lateral, knotted or knotless? Lateral, knotless. And Dr. Bishop, how about you? Lateral and mostly knotted. 
Pete Chalmers, how about you? What are you doing? Well, I'm sure just like you with the, I was taught how to do this by Dr. Romeo, who taught me the ladder position is the only position. And um, I've been tying knots and I don't know if I'm doing it the wrong way, but um, it's mostly because I'm using double loaded anchors and there are no knotless double loaded anchors right now. What about you, Rach? Lateral is the only way. Sorry for the beach chair surgeons. And I have converted from uh, what used to be double loaded anchors and tying to almost exclusively knotless, unless I have a huge capsular shift or a huge inferior kind of imbrication that I need to bring up and then I will tie to help assist with my shift. But I love the knotless anchors with retentionable technology. Um, so with the anchors that I use now, I actually keep all the sutures till the very end and then retension everything at the very end. And I've just been, I've, I've fallen in love with that technique. Well, let's get into um, some of the more difficult things here. So let's talk about when you come across something unexpected in the operating room, something difficult. The question is, how do you respond? When you're in that situation, you're in the heat of the moment, something's not going the way you expected, not the way the way you planned or not the way you wanted it to go. Do you think that how you respond is perceived differently if a male colleague had the same response in the same situation and responded in the same way? So let's talk with Dr. Burns. What are your thoughts on this subject? Well, I guess I'm trying to understand the, the question a little bit. So um, are, are you asking um, expressing frustration in the OR or just, you know, I don't know, having a, a complication or an issue that you need to deal with? Uh, you know, I guess I'm going to throw it back at you. I think we're talking more about the latter situation, not necessarily where I'm not necessarily saying when you're being questioned, but I'm saying more in terms of when you're in a stressful situation, and you have to take charge. How do you respond to that? And do you feel like you've tempered your response maybe based upon worrying about how you'll be received? So, um, you know, it might be a better question, you know, for some of the other panelists. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I, I've been in the same practice location now for uh, 20 years. And, you know, I would say when I started or in my first few years of practice, I was definitely treated differently. Um, I was, you know, written up by nurses, you know, things like that, that I feel like, um, you know, for things that I felt like other surgeons would not have received the same level of attention. But after this amount of time in the same location, I have beaten them into submission and they are used to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like I have a really good working relationship with my staff. So, so I would say that for me today, um, I don't perceive uh, that I'm treated any any differently than than a male surgeon, but uh, you know I I am certainly able to ask for what I want, and I think that they expect that. Dr. Lee, as someone who's a little bit younger in practice than Dr. Burns, although you're not young in practice at all, but younger, do you echo those sentiments, or do you feel like if um, things get hot in the OR and you've got to take a second to check your pulse? Do you feel like what you say might be perceived differently than if, say, Dr. Chalmers was in the OR in the exact same situation in your same room, and he were to say the same thing you might say or react the same way you might react? Do you think that would be perceived differently? Um, and I think this is relevant, especially for some of our younger listeners, both male and female, to understand um, what probably everyone, including Pete, but in particular, the women on this, on this podcast have likely experienced. What are your thoughts? 
Um, and that's a, it's a fantastic question. And I, I definitely, and it's not just orthopedics, it's definitely women in medicine. Um, well, women, at least in the OR, I think that we can be perceived differently. We're judged, um, a lot harsher, whether or not, you know, we're right or wrong, but what we say and how we react, um, there's, it's a lot more under a microscope than I think, uh, a male counterpart would be. Um, and so I think what I've learned is, you know, any sort of perceived weakness can be, or, you know, perceived self-doubt can be, uh, judged harshly. You know, I think that, um, female surgeons definitely get written up a lot more. Um, I've had, you know, other, I've had other people approach me and say, Hey, I don't think that your junior partner, who was a female, I don't think she knows what she is doing when, you know, it's not when it, I don't have that in the same um, with, with the male surgeon, I don't think there's anything different, but I think as a female, we may or may not communicate, um, not necessarily emotions, but concerns. We may be more vocal about what's going on. And I think sometimes that can be perceived as weakness rather than, Hey, I'm trying to figure myself out. Hang on a second. Let me think through things. Um, so I think I've learned in my short career, um, you know, just, just taking a deep breath, um, working on communicating with your team, being affirmative, um, and being confident in what you say. And I think I, I agree. It's once you've earned your street cred, um, they'll, they won't question you once you get there, but you have to earn it. Um, I think we're definitely under a lot more of a microscope than our male counterparts, but that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. You know, you, once you prove yourself, you're, um, I, I think you have a lot of strengths that others don't have. Um, but yes, definitely a lot more under a microscope. What are your thoughts, Dr. Edwards? Do you think that you're judged differently? And maybe even more specifically, do you think you're judged differently by females and by males when you're interacting in this way? I think that that undercurrent still exists, unfortunately. And I think, um, I, I think I've been very lucky. I, I have good relationships with my OR staff and have always been treated well by my OR staff. But I hear stories from people like, oh, the I was written up by the nurses just for asking for something firmly. You know, you hear these stories echoed amongst women surgeons and it's still there. It still happens. Um, I had a wonderful mentor in residency named Leon Benson, who is a hand surgeon in Chicago. And he was just a phenomenal human. But I remember him, we were doing some case, I don't even remember what the case was, but got into some type of trouble. And he just got quiet for a few minutes and then started doing the job, whatever it was, whatever complication we'd encountered, he recovered and, and we were fixing it. And after the case, he talked to me and he said, do you see how I did that? He said, if you freak out in the OR, I think this is great advice for men and women. If you freak out, they're going to lose respect for you. And he said, so you're the captain of the ship. He's like, and you have to stay calm. Even if you're in the worst storm of your life, stay calm. And I always think about that because I, I took that to heart. And I've always done that. If there's a problem, just stay really calm. It, take the room temperature down. Like, don't, don't heat it up. Don't start freaking out and throwing things because that doesn't help you either. It doesn't help you think through the problem or stay calm to solve the problem, whatever you have to do. So just get calmer in those moments. And that's how I tend to react. Um, and, and I think, again, your staff respects you, whether you're male or female, you're going to get respect by doing that. 
Dr. Harrison, let me ask you, in your position as residency director, and you've been in a leadership position at Minnesota for a long time, how do you advise your female residents and trainees or even students on how to approach these types of situations? Do you address it at all differently with the women versus the men? Or is it something you just address with all of your residents or even your junior faculty? Because you have several faculty that are women as well. Um, how do you how do you approach these situations from a mentorship perspective with um, with your trainees and with your partners? Yeah, those are all great uh, and very timely uh, questions. So we are fortunate at Minnesota to have a long track record of training women, twenty five percent over a number of years, um, and. I would say that it's a conversation that that is important to have with your trainees and it continues to be important. And I would echo a number of the things that have already been said. I think it's important, as Dr. Edwards said, to uh, emphasize and demonstrate uh, for our trainees how to stay cool uh, under pressure, because you're right. Um, when, you know, say you have a big bleeder in the operating room, you have to you know, bring the temperature down, control things uh, to be able to effectively care for the patient. And so we have to demonstrate for all of our trainees, both men and women, how to do that. But I think it's also important to point out, like Dr. Lee said, to some of our, or to our uh, female trainees, that that you do have to, I, I think you do have to earn your street cred. I experienced that, I think, early on. Um, uh, you know, I think it's true that we get written up more frequently. Um, I got written up once for advocating for trauma care for a patient, and I guarantee you I was quite a bit more uh, cool <laughs> and respectful, I think, than some male colleagues would be um, in, in trying to get into the operating room. So, so I think all of these things are true, and I think we just have to talk to our trainees about how to always, always, above everything, you advocate for the patient. Um, and you do it in a respectful tone. And if someone has a problem with that, despite you remaining cool, then it's also important that you have the support of your partners and your colleagues. And I've been fortunate enough to have that. Um, I have wonderful, um, I have a chair and, a, and my sports and shoulder colleagues have always been um, supportive of me and have always had my back and have, I mean, they're why I've been able to um, seek out and be successful, I hope, <laughs> in leadership positions. Um, so I think it's all of those things. Dr. Bishop, I want to expand on this just a little bit further, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I want to get your thoughts. So often the way, at least I have found, a female surgeon responds to something can be completely differently perceived than how a male surgeon responds to the very same thing, very same people, very same moment. I personally find this especially true when working with other women, including OR nurses, administrators, even MAs in the office sometimes, and certainly fellow physicians from time to time. And I think Dr. Burns has summarized many of her feelings quite perfectly, or at least my feelings, when at one point she said, and I forget where she said this, but in response to a question, she said, I'm, I'm not being assertive, or I'm, I'm just being assertive, not aggressive. And it's that difference of um, perception about the same response where you might be perceived as aggressive by someone, but then assertive by someone else. Wondering what your thoughts on this, uh, your thoughts are on this as you've, you know, progressed throughout your career to uh, being a leader in your department and training younger surgeons and, and working with junior partners. How, um, how do you advise us, whether it's our male listeners or our female listeners, 
to ensure that our intentions are not ill-perceived? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a tough topic. And I, I think um, what I try to do is I definitely agree that um, earlier in my career, I definitely had to prove myself. I think you are aware that you have to prove yourself. That can lead to self-doubt. That can lead to you second-guessing yourself. Um, and that can impact you in the operating room. And I think, you know, a couple things. I always try to tell myself, block out that you are aware that people are judging you or sizing you up. Realize that you are there for the patient. And when you see this patient back in post-op, none of these people are going to be there. It's you and the patient, and you need to do whatever you need to do to take the best care of them, whether that means you're going to take 45 minutes longer and you know the people are rolling their eyes or whatever it might be. But I think you also have to realize, I think you have to size up the people in your OR. I think as uh, Sarah said, you're the captain of the ship. And I think a lot of what we do is psychological. I, I think you have to figure out how do I need to interact with this person? How do I need to interact with this person to get what I need out of them? Um, I think sometimes men do get away with just blowing up and, you know, yelling or, or kind of blowing their lid. And I think at the end of the day, that's not appropriate anyway. So we shouldn't think they got away with it. You should treat people with respect, but you have to be firm and make people realize this is what you need. This is why you're here. This is what you have to do. But I really think you can't forget that these are all people that are having their own issues and you have to figure out how to interact with them so you can get what you need and be respectful while you're doing it. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. And I love that all of you brought up that the, that ultimately it's about the patient and it's not about you, which I think is really, I think we forget that so often as things get heated. Um, in interpersonal relations when you're having maybe an argument or disagreement. I wanted to move on to something that I think is really hard to talk about. It's a difficult topic um, or a difficult question, I guess, to answer, which is that I think there's this thought many times that when you have a panel of people you're trying to put together that, oh, we should ask one woman just to kind of check off that diversity box or maybe that we have our token woman on this panel. And I, when I think there's certainly, that's so problematic in so many ways. I wanted to start with you, Dr. Bishop. You're such a highly respected person um, that I think it'll be easier for you to talk about because I'm sure this has never, ever happened to you. But what are your thoughts about this? Do you think this happens? How do we address this on a larger academic um, perspective? Well, I think for a long time, it didn't even happen. So I think for a long time, people weren't even thinking um, in those lines, as Rachel said early on, um, their mantles. Um, and then I think as times have changed, I do think that that at times has come into it. Oh, we need to have a woman on the panel. Who is our, who is our token woman? Um, and I think we just need to keep progressing um, with all of the programs that we do for inclusion and diversity and equity and and really be thinking 
who are the best people to have on this panel and recognizing how many accomplished women that we have. Maybe they're not as outspoken. Maybe they're not as pushy. Maybe they don't have as many people advocating for them. But I think it's our job to go out and find and cultivate and mentor and bring along fabulous women so that we are really asking the appropriate people to be on the panel. And, yes, they are also a female. What are your thoughts, Dr. Harrison? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, we want to find the best um, and most engaging uh, speakers for a panel. And and oftentimes, yes, there is a woman who absolutely could serve on that panel. I mean, I have listened to all of the women on this uh, on this podcast so many times, and they're just fantastic. And I think that we need to um, amplify these voices because I think. Oftentimes, yes, perhaps they don't have as many people advocating for them or um, they aren't, maybe we don't put ourselves out there as much. Um, but I think um, for that reason, as we are sort of evolving, I would say, hopefully as a field, um, we do need to ask ourselves, do we have, have we considered um, uh, from a diverse perspective, uh, are we, are we including uh, all of the right people, or are we considering um, a broad field? What are your thoughts, Dr. Lee? How do we fix this? Um, I think that uh, a lot of the uh, panelists here um, have also been through this as well. You get an opportunity to speak at a panel, serve on a panel, serve on a leadership committee. And I think, you know, it may have been you're the token woman to start with, but you bring so much to the table. They really understand your worth, understand that, hey, you know, she brought up some really good points or they really contributed to the panel. Wow, let's invite them back. And it's no longer the token woman. It's it's you who really brings a lot to the table, contributes to the program, adds to the leadership committee, you know. So I think, again, it may be a little bit uh, proving your worth, but I think once they understand how much you can bring to the table, it'll eventually hopefully not just be the token female. It's because, you know, Dr. Edwards, Dr. Burns, Dr. Harrison, they're, they're, you know, they're fantastic to have on the panel. Dr. Bishop is fantastic. And so it becomes more of who you are rather than uh, just being the token female. Let me follow up on that for a sec. And Dr. Edwards, I'm going to direct this to you. Do you, do you think in light of what was just said by, by everyone, that there's more pressure on women if they are on that panel, especially if they're the only one to perform, because if they do a poor job, then no one's ever, and I'm not saying this is true, but I think this is thought of, no one's ever going to want to invite a woman again because a woman can't do it. Whereas if a man does a poor job in a field like ortho, who cares? He just happens to be a dud, but every other man is great. So we'll just keep inviting the men. Do you feel like women have to prove themselves more or have added pressure so that more women get opportunities after them? That's a great question. That's a hard question. <laughs> um, and as the diversity chairman for ASCS right now, I'm, I'm the police making sure that women are on the panel. So I'm one of those people looking at all the courses coming out and making sure that there's representation across the board. And, and, Honestly, uh, just the fact that people kind of know I'm watching, um, 
there's definitely, I think, been better representation since the committee has started. So, and, and I haven't had to tell anyone to add, add more underrepresented minority men or more women. They're just doing it because they know there's a check. So that's kind of interesting. But as far as your question goes, um, is there more pressure to be outstanding? I, I've felt that pressure since undergrad when I was an engineering major. Um, I think there's definitely pressure throughout every every step of the of career. And, and I, that's how I know, you know, most women that make it into orthopedics, at least from our era, I think, I think it's definitely switching. So there's more women going into it. But I'm sure all of you were just exceptional and top of your med school, med school class. It's just no doubt that you had to be exceptional to get here. And then we continue that pattern by trying to be exceptional when we're on the panel because we want to do a good job. You don't want to be um, thought of. It is funny when there's there's still that sense that again, if there if there's a complication or an error error, is it because you know you're a woman or is it because you had a bad day in the OR or something? You know, something like that. It's just I think maybe we all feel that a little bit. Um, I don't so much anymore, but I know when I started, I did. So I, I do think that did that's one that? of the, well, I think that's one of the added pressures that goes unspoken in that we do, I think, at least I know I do, and I'm, I'm sure all the women have at some point, not just in ortho, but probably in any male dominated field where you feel like if you mess up, people are looking at you because of your ovaries and not so much because you just happen to mess up and we're all human and we make mistakes. Whereas I think when the guys make mistakes, they just, it's like it brushes off because that's expected because we all are human and we all make mistakes. So it's a, it's a different way of looking at it. But I think again, for our ASCS listeners and anyone listening to this podcast, it's important whether you're male or female or anything to recognize that these are potentially some of the unspoken um, pressures and thoughts that are going through all of our minds at some point. We have a, a Facebook site, women in orthopedics. Peter, you, you may not know about this, but there is such a site. And today there were comments on there. And I commented about one of the young female attendings. I'm not even sure her name, but she's new in practice. And she wrote, you know, I think her nanny was sick and she couldn't go into work and she was really stressed about it. And I felt I, I'm a mother. I have children. And I felt that because, you know, and then I was talking about one of my co-residents and how amazing it was to watch him mentor me, he and I were partners then at Northwestern and he took a day off because his kids were sick. He canceled a full day of surgery in the morning because his wife had a full clinic. She's an, or, or she's a doctor and he had four surgeries to do. So he canceled his day of surgery. And, you know, the point is he was looked at like a hero. Like, look at this great guy. Look at this dad who canceled his day of surgery to take care of his kids, his sick kid. And I remember thinking if I would have done that, they would have been like, she doesn't have her act together. You know, she doesn't have her home life figured out. And so there is a, a little perception, I think, still, you know, and particularly this year with COVID and having to cycle, taking so many days. I've never taken so many days off of work until this year when my kids are quarantining and we're quarantining because of the kids. It's been really challenging. And um, and there's a guilt to that. Like, I feel bad. Like, oh, if you know, this this is bad because I'm a woman and, you know, I have to take care of my kids. I shouldn't feel bad about that, but you do. So anyway. Dr. Burns, let me ask you a question. You brought this up a little bit earlier. Women in general remain highly underrepresented with industry and industry relationships. And while I don't have data to prove this, I think we all 
know this just based on who we see speaking for a variety of different companies, giving lectures at the courses, technique videos, all of the above. Why do you think this is? What are your thoughts here? And is this something that we need to pay more attention to? Is this something that needs to be improved? Or it is what it is and people can have their industry relationships if they want to? Well, you know, as we kind of uh, discussed earlier, um, you know, having a diverse set of viewpoints when you're developing a product or if you're on a panel, which we were just talking about, or in the field in, in any way, you know, it's, it's not just because we want a token female participating. Uh, you know, we, we know from the research that's been done on Fortune 500 companies that, you know, having a diverse board you know, including different types of individuals, broadening the perspective, you know, makes a difference in terms of sales, bottom line, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, in orthopedics, you know, I don't have the answer to how to solve this problem, but my perception is that um, industry relationships are still networky. They're very, they're very networky. Like you don't necessarily get, you know, an offer for consulting until you've established a personal relationship with someone, um, you know, whether your partner introduces you to that person or whether, you know, however you meet that. And so, you know, that's still an area where I think women are at a disadvantage. You know, I think the, the way that uh, women network and the way that, uh, you know, we interact is, is perhaps a different style. Um, and perhaps we just don't have those opportunities. But, you know, to me, in order to have more industry participation, which I think is essential for the companies and not just for, for women to have these opportunities, but for the companies to truly be successful, you know, there needs to be more of a, of a pipeline of networking and, and being introduced to women who would be appropriate for the roles. I wanted to ask a follow-up on this. I think that's very true that the industry relationships are based on personal relations and networking. And we just heard Dr. Edwards talk a lot about how maybe as the woman in the relationship, there's an expectation that you're gonna be the more person at home in the evening and that you're gonna have a bigger role with your kids than your spouse will. I think that's a societal expectation that's you know, probably wrong, but it's, it's certainly, I think a lot of people feel that. Do you think it's harder to do that networking as a woman then because you're maybe not able to go to the same dinners? Dr. Lee, what are your thoughts on this? Is this is this more challenging as a woman, this specific aspect of it or not? Um, I think that it's a very, very good question. And I think um, just for me, where I am in my life, um, you know, the ages that my kids are, I think you, there's different phases and different um, times in which things can be a little bit easier to establish. So I know industry relationships, it does involve some time and involves weekends away. Um, you know, that may be easier when your kids are a little bit older. And so I think, and, and for guys, stereotypically, um, it's a little times, but as, as a mom, it's really hard to leave when, when your kid is really young and they're the one who takes care of them in the middle of the night. Um, so I think, uh, is it, is it more difficult? Is it, is it, is it just, it's just different. And I think that at least for me, uh, my perception is that industry relationships, um, there, there are opportunities there, but yes, it is a little bit more difficult to take those opportunities. I think we take them in a different way than the guys do. Um, but I do think that hopefully 
in different stages of my career, I hope to have different opportunities um, based on what I'm available to do with, um, with where my family is. Now, Dr. Harrison, I know you you play a really important role in Minnesota in advising residents, and you mentioned you have a lot of female residents. Do you have female residents ask you about this aspect? How do I juggle kind of the extra aspects of my career and raising children? How do you advise them about how to figure that out? Yes, we, we do talk about this. Um, and I would say, so one of my, uh, one of my partners, um, one of my male partners who's been a great advocate for me once told me, he's like, you know, you do have to do it all but you don't have to do it all right now. So um, I think you do have to find what works, you know, all of us are different, you know, where I'm at in my life right now or with my family is different than where Dr. Edwards is or Dr. Lee is or Dr. Burns or Dr. Bishop. Um, and what, what I might prioritize might be different than, you know, one of my female residents who, you know, when, when we're at the same stage in our career, just because we're women doesn't mean we, want or need the same things. Um, so I talk to them about setting their priorities. And if they want to have a strong role in industry, then then we should talk about how to make that happen. And, and you do have to network and you do have to find the right relationships and advocates. And, and I think you can make it happen. Um, but I'm also upfront with the fact that, you know, I've got three ridiculously busy um, beautiful boys. And fortunately, my husband um, stays home with them. And, and that's how we make it work. Um, and I, but I still feel the pull of wanting to be home with them. And so if I am out or traveling, um, you know, there is still that pull um, to home. But like, like I said, you know, we try to do it all, I just can't do it all at the same time. And so we prioritize. And so I, I talked to the residents about about setting their own priorities. Now, Dr. Bishop, there's one more aspect of interacting with the industry that I wanted to ask you about, which is that sometimes I think when someone is really involved with industry, they're seen as like, oh, that person will do anything for that company. There's like a moral aspect to it, which right or wrong, I think many people perceive that some individuals, like their relationship with the industry are bad or wrong. Do you think that women would be perceived differently if they were in that role than men? Maybe men would be perceived as though they're just trying to make it work and a woman might be perceived as though that person is doing the wrong thing. Do you think that plays a role or no? Plays a role in whether women get involved in industry? I'm sorry. Exactly. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying and I think that certainly you're right, right or wrong. Um, there is the perception sometimes that somebody is in bed with industry and they'll do whatever they need to do to, um, to get that consulting position. I think when women are involved in industry, they may not be viewed quite the same way, but I don't think it deters women from getting involved in industry, at least my opinion, I don't think that's a reason why women don't get involved because they're concern people might perceive them that way. I think mostly when, when women don't get involved in industry, from my experience, um, especially early on in my career, I think it was just lack of, of opportunity um, and a desire 
not to play the game of networking in order to sell yourself, um, at least in the early stages of, of my career. All right, we're going to move on to the last portion of this podcast and potentially the most timely given what's going on in the world right now. So by now, many, if not all of our listeners have heard of the ortho spreadsheet, so to speak. For anyone not familiar, in summary, this is an online document that orthopedic residency, although it's not just orthopedic, many specialties have this, but for our podcast sake, orthopedic residents use every year typically anonymously, to chat with each other about residency programs, interview dates, what's the good, what's the bad. In fact, some residency program directors and leaders will be on this spreadsheet and reply to questions that come up. And this has been going on for years. Back when I was applying to residency, we we had a different website, but same concept with OrthoGate. And so kind of similar stuff been going on for years, if not decades. But recently, in the last two weeks, this spreadsheet has essentially blown up on social media due to it containing vulgar, misogynist, racist comments written by actual humans, actual applicants to orthopedic residencies, and in some cases calling out specific residency applicants by name and making such comments. A variety of different orthopedic societies and organizations, including the AAOS, the AOA, Speak Up Ortho, among many others, have spoken up about this and um, said how negative this is and, and that this won't be tolerated. I'm personally wondering everyone on this podcast thoughts about this. Uh, and I wonder this for a variety of reasons, but namely, these are people that will likely get into orthopedic residencies and become our residents and our fellows and our partners and take care of patients, patients who happen to be women, patients who might happen to be a different race than them. And these are their their thoughts and they're putting it out on paper. Dr. Harrison, let's start with you because as a residency program director, you you have to make some big time decisions about who gets into your program. What are your thoughts on this spreadsheet and how do we approach individuals who have been affected by this or who have contributed to this spreadsheet? Yeah. So, I mean, disappointing is not a strong enough word. Um, Disappointed. Um, It's just, I mean, I'm heartbroken for the, um, orthopedic residents who were named and hurt and this it's just unacceptable um you know and I think I I mean I'm a bit sheltered at Minnesota because my my male colleagues are just not would never do that um and there's so many so many men in orthopedics who are are great advocates and supportive and also obviously call this out but you know, this year, I will likely never know who made those comments. These people will not, I don't think, be identified um, by the time that we make our rank lists. All I can say is that if, you know, these people match into orthopedics or others like them who would make such comments match into orthopedics, if their behavior um such as this comes to light, or they make similar comments, or their actions are perceived as misogynistic or racist, we must call it out in the moment. That is how this will stop, is it has to be called out in the moment. So when someone makes a hurtful comment to another person, um, to their face, or if someone says something in the operating room that is not appropriate, it needs to be called out. I guess that's 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 all that's what's in my power is to say that's not okay when I see it. 
and I can talk to somebody about it. In this in this spreadsheet, I, I probably will not find out who these people are, but we have to call it out when we see it. Dr. Edwards, what are your thoughts on this? How have how has the environment been at UCSF about this spreadsheet? And again, we're well into residency application season. I mean, we're all reviewing applications. We're about to offer interviews. Um, th this is a super hot topic. How has this gone over at, at your institution and with you personally? You know, I think it's interesting at UCSF because many of us, we've been talking about it, but many of us haven't actually seen it because it, they took it down right away. So there's been a lot of talk about, you know, oh, these words were terrible. And it's a little hard for me to judge because I haven't actually read them or seen it. Um, I got the that Bill Levine, you know, filled me in because he saw it. I think he was one of the pe first people who, who saw it about what was being said, particularly about women applicants. And I think it's just disheartening. We've come so far. And I think last year they had the highest number of females ever match in orthopedics. They had the highest number of underrepresented minorities match in orthopedics. And then for this kind of comment, you know, this kind of document to be circulated out there negates all that work that people have done to try to increase our representation and increase the diversity within orthopedics. So, you know, there's just a sadness, I think, at UCSF that that's out there. UCSF is, you know, just like a utopia as far as we have so many women working there. You know, it's a lot of outstanding, I have so many outstanding female um, colleagues that, you know, it's, it's just unheard of to be done there. So anyway, and it's sadness for my residents. My residents and I were talking about it in the OR the other day and they, they kind of filled me in too. Some of them had seen it and they, you know, seemed really disappointed that that was out there. Dr. Burns, what are your thoughts? You know, this is, this is something that, you know, you've been, um, active on social media, uh, and this is blown up on social media, and all it takes is one thing for this to become the front page of the New York Times, right? We all know that. We all know all it takes is one comment, one public statement, one whatever. Um, you know, should anything be further done about this? Should we, you know, ask our leadership societies to find a way to identify these individuals? I, I don't even know if that's possible, uh, but what are your thoughts or reaction to this um, spreadsheet? Well, I, I think that uh, uh, Alicia really, you know, said it well in that, you know, we really need to try to encourage an environment where, uh, you know, you know, at her at her program, you know, 25 percent of people are women. We need women in different levels and positions. And then, as she said, we need to speak up and speak out when we see it. And honestly, that's the hardest thing. It really is the hardest thing to do as an individual. Uh, you know, especially if you're not in a position of power um, to speak up and to and to point it out. And I, I think that's really been the incredible power of social media on so many levels. It's incredible. But what social media does and, you know, there's a, a new organization, Speak Up Ortho, and that's exactly what they're proposing to do is to speak up when they see these injustices but everything from, you know, racial justice um, to the LBG, TQ community to orthopedics, uh, those types of things. You know, the, the power of social media is that we can take an incident, we can take a problem that's identified and we can amplify it. So it's not just our own voice, our lonely voice, kind of calling out individually, but really being able to speak up as a group. So I do see the power of social media 
I love the idea of speaking up when you see something wrong, but I'm, I'm the first to admit that it's not easy to do, not for any of us. Certainly so disappointing this day and age to have anyone say that. And uh, I, it would be, it does sound like part of the problem is we're never going to know who said that and those people will match. And that's also disappointing that there's no consequences for those actions. I wanted to move on to this, to, to one more aspect of this that I think was something that was frequently said when I was a medical student, and I think is probably still said under people's breaths, and that's this. There's this perception that orthopedics is this burly, burly kind of specialty where you need to have a lot of physical strength. Like, and I remember people saying this when I was resident, they would say, you need to be strong to reduce that hip and some women are not strong enough to do orthopedics. So I, I want, I've, I'm going to ask this question of Julie Bishop because I've seen your biceps and I know you're strong enough. What are your thoughts? What is the counter to this? So I think there's a couple counters. I think one, you really have to tell people that it is about technique. It is about finesse. And it is not about brute strength. And you break things that you don't want to break when you think it's just about strength. So that is, um, that's from the dark ages. However, I do think we need to um, impress upon people that there's a certain amount of grit and stamina that you do need just for any surgical subspecialty. Um, but certainly if you're going to wrestle four really big total shoulders in a day, I don't think you need to, um, you know, be bench pressing 300 pounds by any means. But I think you need to have stamina. And, and I really like um, there is a, a paper that um, somebody wrote a couple years ago about the grit factor. And I think you really just need to – I think you do need that. Um, but I do not think it's all about being a 6'6", six, six, um, you know, ex, uh, you know, offensive lineman in order to play, um, in order to be an orthopedic surgeon. What are your thoughts, Dr. Lee? Did you hear this when you were a resident? Do you, did you hear this when you were a medical student? It's not true. Tell us why not. Um, I think I heard this today. Um, I just don't get this in my office quite a bit. Like, you know, um, I would expect, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, you've got to be really big and, and strong and, you know, your hands are just so small. And I always warn them, hey, it's the little ones that are feisty. You got to watch out for those little ones. And I usually brush it off as a joke with my patients or say, hey, a lot of it's technique, you know, or I have drugs on my side to help out. But it, or it's like it's me and a couple step stools not in the operating room, but we'll get things taken care of. Um, and so that's kind of a nice way of addressing it. Like, hey, you don't you don't need to you don't need to comment about that, you know, or you don't need to. That's my way of addressing it, I suppose. Maybe laughing it off a little bit with families, um, but I think uh, it it is a lot about technique. It is a lot, of, and and once you're able to prove to them, hey, you know, you did a great job. I get comments like, you know, look at this incision. This is great. This is totally a woman's work. You're like, oh, thanks, good, but. Um, you know, you get compliments on the other side of things. I, I think, and just it just it, it is about grit. It's about putting your your head down, working hard, um, and not letting these affect you. And I think once you're able to uh, prove that it's not about brute strength, it is technique. There are things that you bring to the table that there are not there um, in guys who are six, seven, you know, size nine gloves. I think that's not all what orthopedics is. There's there's finesse involved. There's technique involved. There's a lot of things that we do bring to the table. 
I wanted to thank all of you for coming on. This is um, this was like awesome. All of you did a phenomenal job, and it was a um, real tour de force. Um, so I really can't tell you how much I appreciate all of you taking the time to come on and talk to you about your talk to us about your experiences. Um, I, I did want to follow up really quickly because um, you know, as as Rachel commented early, you know, um, about saying I'm. I'm assertive, not aggressive. I, I have a, a comment that I say that really echoes what what uh, uh, Julia and and Dr. Bishop said, which which is if you're working too hard, you're doing wrong. There's there's something technique wise that you need to to do to make it better. And um, I, I love Peter. You know, you're at the University of Utah, and that's where I, where I trained. And when you said, "Oh, you need a lot of brute strength to reduce a hip," it reminded me of something that happened when I was a chief resident at your institution, um, which was, uh, you know, a hip came in, a total hip that needed to be reduced. And uh, I got up there, reduced, uh, tried to reduce it; it wouldn't reduce. So I was the chief resident, senior resident. So they called the junior resident to come in, nice, nice, big, burly guy, and he came in and. He pulled on the hip and he couldn't reduce it either. And so they literally called the intern because he was the biggest, strongest, most muscular guy. He pulled on the leg, couldn't get it reduced. So they finally called the person they needed to call, who was the attending, uh, Aaron Hoffman at the time. And uh, uh, it had been reduction. It was not reducible. So, um, you know, that I always, I'll never forget that because it just, stood out to me as well it's it's not about size and strength it really is about technique and if you're working that hard there's something wrong so i'd like to end on that note hopefully that kind of thing doesn't happen to the you anymore but um yeah you, you hear stories like that all the time and they're disappointing Catherine and i had to take call when i was uh i was covering call for the residents for oite one year and i think i was eight months pregnant and I told them that I would be okay. I'm like, maybe if a really bad hip dislocation comes in, but but I think I got it. <clears throat> well, guess what came in? It was a really bad hip dislocation. And I was eight months pregnant. I got up on that table and I put it back in. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm sure all that extra weight really helped you to that get probably that. probably helped. <laughs> That's probably what it was. Well, there is no better way to end the podcast than on that note. And that really is all the time we have for this podcast. We want to thank our guests so much, Dr. Burns, Dr. Lee, Dr. Edwards, Dr. Bishop, Dr. Harrison. For the record, and I'm not saying this is directly related to all of our guests being women, but this podcast by far was the easiest podcast to schedule. Everyone responded timely to the doodle poll and made themselves available. Again, not saying specific to everyone being women, but one does wonder. Anyway, for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. For Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.